The JavaScript ecosystem stretches across front-end, back-end, and middleware. There are newer tools such as GraphQL, Gatsby, and WebAssembly. And there are frameworks like React, Vue, and Angular. There's complex data handling with streams, caches, and TensorFlow.js. JavaScript is unlike any other ecosystem because a single language can be used to construct every part of an application. Because JavaScript is used for such a broad spectrum of use cases, the amount of tooling available can be intimidating to someone new to the ecosystem. Kevin Ball is a host of JS Party, a podcast on the Changelog Network. Kevin joins the show to give his perspective on the JavaScript ecosystem. In this episode, we discussed ES modules, the Jamstack, and the growing number of tools, libraries, and workflows used by JavaScript developers. We are hiring a software engineer who can work across both mobile and web. This role would work on softwaredaily.com, which is a Vue.js application, our iOS app, and our Android application. We're looking for somebody who is very flexible and who learns very quickly and can produce high-quality code at a fast pace. If you're interested in working with us, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. We're looking for somebody who's hungry and somewhat entrepreneurial. So I would love to work with you if you are well-versed and a fast learner. Just send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. As businesses become more integrated with their software than ever before, it has become possible to understand the business more clearly through monitoring, logging, and advanced data visibility. Sumo Logic is a continuous intelligence platform that builds tools for operations, security, and cloud native infrastructure. The company has studied thousands of businesses to get an understanding of modern continuous intelligence and then compiled that information into the Continuous Intelligence Report, which is available at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic. The sumologic Continuous Intelligence Report contains statistics about the modern world of infrastructure. Here are some statistics I found particularly useful. 64% of the businesses in the survey were entirely on Amazon Web Services, which was vastly more than any other cloud provider or multi-cloud or on-prem deployment. That's a lot of infrastructure on AWS. Another factoid I found was that a typical enterprise uses 15 AWS services, and one in three enterprises uses AWS Lambda. It appears serverless is catching on. There are lots of other fascinating statistics in the Continuous Intelligence Report, including information on database adoption, Kubernetes, and web server popularity. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sumologic and download the Continuous Intelligence Report today. Thank you to Sumo Logic for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Kevin Ball, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey Jeff, good to be here. I'd like us to take a tour through the modern world of JavaScript, and the place I'd like to start is ES modules. Explain what an ES module is. Well, let's start by going back a little bit to talk about 
how modules in JavaScript sort of evolved over time. So unlike some languages that start with this concept of code isolation and modules and things like that, JavaScript, when it originated, everything was in global scope. There was no concept of a module and separating things and pulling things out because it started as a play language on the web. And then as people started to do more serious software engineering with JavaScript, they wanted to use good practices like code isolation and, and things like that. And so initially there were a bunch of what you might call user space solutions to that. Folks who basically built up using the language as it existed ways to create modules. And that's where you get things like AMD, which was one of the, the first sort of specifications you could call it. It was essentially like, once again, a user space specification. If you write your code in this way, it will work with this tooling and we can load it dynamically and you get nice isolation, things like that. Over time, the language became more mature and folks started saying, hey, we should actually have a first class solution to this. The first close thing we got to that was when Node.js came around and they said, hey, we're writing you know, server-side packages. We need a way to do this. We're not going to be shipping stuff up to the browser. We're not isolated in the same way. We don't have as, as limited scope in the same way. We're just going to make something happen. And that was based more or less on AMD and CommonJS, which is another sort of specification that came on that. And that became like the de facto standard as Node and Require, which is this CommonJS approach. And then it went up one more level and it said, okay, Node, it, while you know very large and very popular and able to drive this de facto standard, that's not actually the language. We need a language level solution for how we encapsulate code and allow it to load in different ways. And that was when ES modules kind of evolved so this is something coming down from the TC39 specification community, the ECMAScript specification, where this is how modules function in the language of JavaScript as defined at the spec level. So it's no longer user space. This is actually baked into the language and accessible. Now, because it's the web and it's messy and all these other things, there's been all these back and forth about, okay, what about file extensions and how does this change different things? Because many of those de facto standards around Node had built up lots of tooling and magic around this. And it, it would just work in lots of ways that turned out to not actually work when you try to do them in cross-environment situations, like how does this work in a browser as compared on a server? So there's a lot of stuff there that has really been getting hammered out and still coming in. But that that's the high level is ES modules are the language level. Now we're bringing it down into the actual specification solution to a problem that's been solved in user space for years. A classic example of a module that we needed is jQuery, right? Like jQuery is this big blob of things that we need out of our JavaScript infrastructure. And historically, we would just import it on a global basis, and we would have it available to our entire JavaScript application. And that was not perfect, but it did the trick. What is wrong with that architecturally? Why is it problematic to have a global variable? Why is it problematic architecturally to have a global variable? I mean, this is actually an interesting question because I think that's a lesson that gets overapplied and it gets fought about a lot in the web world when you start talking about CSS, which is still in many ways global in different ways. The fundamental challenge with having things that are global is it's really easy to break them. <laughs> if you're trying to pull in code from lots of different places that have perceptions about what this thing is and is it going to be there or not going to be there and can I manipulate it? If there's just one, then those things can mess with each other and break with each other. And especially, you know, if you look at the JavaScript ecosystem today, 
the trend is towards lots and lots of small packages. The tooling around packages and package installation and dependency management is so good that people said, well, why have large packages when it's just as easy to do 10 small packages and then each one of those has a tiny surface area I can test and and do things. That ecosystem doesn't work if everything's global because if I'm installing a thousand packages and each one is depending on something global that they can actually mess around with and mess up, like very quickly I'm going to end up in a territory where one of those is expecting one thing, but the other one has already manipulated it in some way. And so it's not quite matching expectations. Like if you're going to be integrating different pieces of code where you don't control everything, which is fundamental to modern software development in general, right? Like old days, you look back, browser applications, they're relatively simple. They're small. The entire code base can be owned by one person or one team. Whereas nowadays, if you look at a modern web application, look at Gmail or Facebook or one of these really advanced products, they've got maybe half a million lines of JavaScript. If each team that's working on that, that's probably spread across five, six, 10, 20 teams. Like if if each one is able to muck with these global variables, you're going to shoot each other in the foot real quick. Just to revisit, what problem do ES modules solve? ES modules solve, how do I isolate code into its own package, essentially, whether it's within a single application or package or an external one, and reliably pull that into my own application or into another package to use. It's the same problem that essentially like gems. It's actually, it's a little more complicated because it's also how you do code imports. So like you could think of a package, an ES module as it's sort of the equivalent of like even just importing code, like it built into the language of Python or Go or something like that, where you can import code from one file into another file that literally did not exist as part of the language before it was packed together with user space tools that would sort of put that together for you, right? So it's, it's this fundamental problem that most languages had built in from the start. Like you wouldn't imagine writing a Python application where you couldn't import code from one file into another file, but that was all user space solutions. That wasn't part of the language prior to ES module. Why have ES modules been controversial? <laughs> well, partly because they're in the web and The web, it's probably the, I I don't think it's out there to say that the web is sort of the widest and most diverse set of software stuff that exists, right? Like it's, you have things that are running in a distributed environment across every device known to man. You have no control over how this thing is running, where this thing is running other than it's in the browser. And so people did all sorts of crazy stuff. On top of, you've got server-side solutions of JavaScript with Node where you, know, you have that more traditional environment. There were already solutions that existed there uh, that had been built up that are subtly incompatible with ES modules. So you have the JavaScript language being specified by folks who are mostly concerned about the web. They're mostly people coming from you know, browser companies thinking about that use case, and they're trying to build something that is also going to be utilized on the server where there were already subtly different approaches being used. I think there were also just missteps along the way. There were you know, ways of people trying to make them kind of different than just being JavaScript. So you know, there was an introduction of, okay, we're going to tell what's a module and what's not by having a different file extension. And that was problematic because 
in the node world where, where people were mostly thinking about packages, like everything is just file extension. It deals with it for you. You don't even have to include a file extension because node has all this magic about looking up, is it here? Is it there? And what have you. So it, it you know, created these situations where you had kind of discrepancies from the way people were used to thinking about the world. One other aspect that I think is worth bringing up here that is pretty interesting and, and I think also relates to why ES modules have been very controversial is in the JavaScript world, we've gotten used to using features before they are fully specified because there is an incredible set of tooling that essentially allows you to transpile within the language. So you can extend JavaScript to add new functionality and transpile it back to older functionality. And the tooling for this is called Babel. And it's a transpiler. And the original use case was, okay, browsers are slow to update. And in fact, you know, looking back five years, many of them did not automatically update. So a user had to go and actually do something to update their browser, which meant that even though JavaScript was moving forward and, and adopting features that were valuable in sort of bringing it from being a toy language into a you know, first world or a high productivity, extremely powerful language, you couldn't write code in that way and run it on those old browsers unless you had a way to translate that, that new syntax and this new code back into something those browsers could understand. So the JavaScript world has gotten used to using features and compiling them back to older browsers. Now, this meant that when people started talking about ES modules and they said, hey, this is a really cool syntax, we're going to do this, they could use it before it ever got specified or built into any platform. It was not built into any browser. It was not built into Node at all. And people started using it by using Babel to transpile it and using Webpack to, and, and similar bundlers to package things together. However, they were doing that based on the assumption that, hey, we can you know, just call it a .js file the same way we've called every other JavaScript file we've ever worked with, and it'll just work. And then the specification morphed and initially said, oh, no, you're going to have to have a different file extension for these modules because they're really they're different from the old stuff. So... I think that was fundamentally a misstep, but why it was so controversial was because we as a community had already started using these things as a way that we assumed we would be able to. And then it turned out that that wasn't going to be quite right. Well, one way that applications in the JavaScript ecosystem get condensed and presented to the end consumer is through a bundler. Can you explain what a JavaScript bundler is? Yes. So this, this comes from a couple of interesting things. So one thing to remember whenever you're talking about JavaScript is the number one target for JavaScript is the web. That means that any code that someone is going to run has to get loaded by their browser over an internet connection. Probably, you know, majority of web access now, it's probably through a mobile phone connection. And many of those connections are pretty slow. And so you need to... You know, there's there's long been work on saying how do we make that amount of code that we're shipping out to the browser as minimal as possible, especially when you know, there was no equivalent of assembly language out there. I couldn't ship a binary. I had to ship actual JavaScript. And so bundlers are the next step of going back a number of ways. You know, we had this approach years and years ago where we would concatenate all of our files and minify them. So what that would get you is, hey, I'm going to have a single file that has to be loaded. So I don't have to issue a bunch of HTTP requests, which is less relevant now that we have HTTP2 and, and things like that. So it's not as expensive to issue more requests, but it's still a thing. So I'm going to concatenate it. So you only have to do a single request. 
I'm going to minify it, which is another one of these sort of transpilation things where any type of variable name or code name or whatever is going to get squashed down to very small letters, you know, single letter function names, et cetera, et cetera, and transformed into the, as essentially as tightly as I possibly can compress this file. And then I'm going to ship that single bundle of JavaScript out to the web. And so that's an old tradition that's been around essentially, uh, certainly as long as I've been doing web development, which is, I don't want to say how long now, but you know, it, that's been with us more or less since the beginning of JavaScript is we're going to put these things all together, ship them out. Now in the old days when everything was global, you just had to make sure that you were putting those files in the right order so that anything that depended on one thing happened after that thing was defined and kind of put them all in a file and go. But in the new days, that dependency is more complicated. It's more complex in a good way. It, you have much finer grain control of it because you are importing modules, whether it's ES modules or you're using AMD or you're using CommonJS and, and old school node modules. You're pulling in code from all sorts of different ways in a complex dependency tree. And we still want to take all of that together, smash it into maybe one file, maybe a set of files, but a small number of files and have it all work together. So a bundler is taking charge of that. At core, what a bundler is doing is it's crawling that dependency graph, figuring out what is the set of code that you're importing from all these different places that is needed to make this thing run, smashing it together into a file, which bundlers at a more advanced level may then split out into multiple files for different types of optimization, but smashing it together and potentially minifying it, potentially doing other things on that so that you have that blob of JavaScript that you can ship up to the browser. And... How does a bundler fit into my workflow as a JavaScript developer? Like you've just given an overview of what purpose it is solving. How does it actually fit into what I am doing on a day-to-day basis? Hopefully you can ignore it because somebody else has set it up because they are to this day a nightmare to configure, though there's been progress on that. But conceptually, it's the, you know, if you're thinking about this from an old school software development standpoint, it's your make file or it's a piece of how you're, you're making your project. So you're writing your code. Hopefully you don't have to worry about your bundler because it's already set up. And then when you're ready to run it, the bundler packages it up and ships it to the browser. And typically a setup will have a development mode, which is doing hot reloads. So anytime a change is made, the bundler will rebundle and automatically refresh your page for you. And then when it comes time for deployment, it's just going to make it all up into your final packaged files and ship it out. One concept that may be useful to talk about there is the concept of an entry file. So we were talking about this as a dependency tree. A tree starts at a single root node. So what you'll do is you'll tell your bundler, hey, this is the entry point to my application or this library or whatever it is. And it will take that as its starting place, crawl down that tree, and then bundle things up into a single file that is named predictably, and you can customize that or configure that however you want, but that started at that single entry point. So in a common setup, in a relatively simple setup, you probably have just one entry point. That is your top-level file. That's your app.js or whatever it is. And the bundler will crawl down that, package it up. You end up with a single app-compiled JS that is then ready to run. And... Considering we started with a conversation about modules, how do modules and the emergence and the rise in popularity of modules, how does that affect the ideal workflow that we would have with a bundler? Chances are it doesn't affect them at all for you. Because if you're using a bundler, it's because you're already using some form of modules. (laughs) In fact, chances are, if you're writing JavaScript right now, you're probably even using something that looks like ES modules. 
And if you're compiling up your code to be a single blob to send out, your bundler config is going to stay essentially the same. The fact that we have ES modules shipping natively to the browser does enable us to do some things down the road as more and more of those modules you know, exist and are supported. And you can you could see a world where we don't have to do that same level of bundling because the browser handles all of those imports for us. But day-to-day right now, ES modules is a great way to structure your code. The bundler will keep working the way it's been working. And I don't think there's any advantage to trying to move away from that. When you say the browser could potentially handle the importing, what do you mean by that? What would that look like? Yeah, so right now, in a typical bundled setup, a JavaScript file is not loading other JavaScript files unless you're explicitly writing JavaScript that says like, hey, go and fetch this file and add it to my HTML or something like that. Like it's not doing that dependency tree crawl. If you had an import statement, it wouldn't know what to do with it. When you add ES modules, it now knows what to do with that. So so long as that import statement is pointing to a fully qualified path, basically a URL, the browser can pull that, go and get it, come back and put it in place and run it as you would need it. That in Bundler world, they're doing that for you. They're crawling it, they're packaging it up. So those import statements get compiled away to we're putting this code in this place and linking things up properly. So from a developer standpoint, chances are it's not going to make that much of a difference to you one way or another, which way you do it right now, except it's more of a pain to do it with the browser because you have to do fully qualified paths and all of that. Whereas with a bundler, it can be smart and you can set up aliases and you can do all sorts of other smart things. So I'm far from the biggest expert on ES modules in particular, but on JS Party, we just did an episode of that where we were picking the brain of one of the folks who is an expert in this area. And the overwhelming message I came back from is don't worry about it yet. If you're writing modules, if you're wanting to explore something new, go out and take your modules and make sure they're ES module compatible and they're they're shipping that. If you want to explore writing tooling in that, but if you're a line developer writing JavaScript, just keep using a bundler for now. It's not going to hurt you and it's going to work better right now. Being on call is hard, but having the right tools for the job can make it easier. When you wake up in the middle of the night to troubleshoot the database, you should be able to have the database monitoring information right in front of you. When you're out to dinner and your phone buzzes because your entire application is down, you should be able to easily find out who pushed code most recently so that you can contact them and find out how to troubleshoot the issue. VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. VictorOps brings your monitoring data and your collaboration tools into one place so that you can fix issues more quickly and reduce the pain of on-call. Go to victorops.com sedaily and get a free t-shirt when you try out VictorOps. And it's not just any t-shirt. It's an on-call shirt. When you're on call, your tools should make the experience as good as possible. And these tools include a comfortable t-shirt. If you visit victorops.com slash sedaily and try out VictorOps, you can get that comfortable t-shirt. VictorOps integrates with all of your services. Slack, Splunk, CloudWatch, Datadog, New Relic. And over time, VictorOps improves and delivers more value to you through machine learning. If you want to hear about how VictorOps works, you can listen to our episode with Chris Riley. 
VictorOps is a collaborative incident response tool. And you can learn more about it as well as get a free t-shirt when you check it out at victorops.com slash sedaily. Thanks for listening, and thanks to VictorOps for being a sponsor. So JS Party is definitely a better podcast to dive into for people who are very serious about their JavaScript and their, you know, if you want to hear like kind of a talk show experience for going into the minutiae of JavaScript and, and, you know, more introductory conversations as well. It's definitely a better podcast for that. But just sort of channeling my own inner JS party for this episode, I do want to continue down kind of a just a list of, of things that I've been thinking about or, or exploring in in other episodes or things that have come up in other episodes that we've done about JavaScript or front-end development. There is a term, JavaScript fatigue or <laughs> tooling fatigue. Yeah. What does that mean? What are people fatigued about? Who is fatigued? Is this new developers, old developers, every developer? What are we talking about here? Great question. This is coming from the fact that the JavaScript ecosystem is massive and moves faster than probably any other ecosystem I'm aware of. There are I mean if you there are stats you can look at for number of packages in different ecosystems and you know, you can look at okay how many you know PyPy packages can I install with Python, how many Ruby gems are there, whatever. JavaScript is essentially at an order of magnitude above everyone else and growing way faster. So there are like 500 new packages, new JavaScript packages added to the NPM registry every day. It is ridiculous. And the language itself is evolving and evolving relatively rapidly. The language has, I think since 2015, there's a new spec published every year and it continues to make advances and progress. And so what this means is that there's even more than in any software engineering job, there's a tremendous kind of hamster wheel effect of trying to keep up, trying to keep up. What's new? What's different? What's new? What's different? The approaches that were modern and correct and the right way to do it two years ago are perceived now to be old school and out of date and not there. And some of this is just perception. You know, I just did an interview with somebody from Etsy and she said their, their mantra is, you know, we like boring tech. And there's a lot to be said for that, right? Like you don't have to be using the latest and greatest, fanciest JavaScript framework and all of those different pieces to be writing good software, not in any way, shape or form. But there is this perception of constantly having to adopt new things, constantly having to adopt new changes, and that's exhausting. And there is some amount of truth to it in that you know, the types of things that you can create and write now using a modern JavaScript framework are like React or Vue or Angular or even one of the more sort of newcomers to the scene like Svelte. Like the type of application you can write, the level of dynamic interactivity that you can create in a browser is simply worlds beyond what you could do five years ago with a mostly jQuery-based application. It's incredible. And you can write much more productively because you have all this tooling in place. So there's, there is some real need to, to learn and to grow and to adopt the new frameworks and technologies that are coming available. But so much of it is just perception, is this feeling of keeping up and you've got to keep up and there's a treadmill and you can't catch up. And that creates fatigue. There is definitely a sense that, well, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons why there is this 
really, really rapid pace is there's a sense, there's almost a, a, like a palpable future where front-end development is as easy as dragging and dropping or as easy as a low-code tool where you're just, you're building a user interface with a WYSIWYG and you're easily putting together these UI components. You're, you're putting together basically a front-end application that does everything you need it to do. And if you wanted to dig deeper into it and optimize the performance of a particular React component, for example, you could do that. You would have no problem doing that. We're not there yet. We are still in a time where the front-end developer has to do a lot of debugging and tweaking and typing of code. It's not a drag-and-drop UI experience yet. We still need separate roles for the designer and the front-end developer, although there does seem to be like some palpable future where perhaps those two roles will, will intertwine. And hard to know where that ends up, but you know, I think one thing we could discuss that seems to be hinting at that future is these component libraries where it seems to be there's component systems that facilitate workflows between designers and front-end developers, these places where the designer and the front-end developer can mind meld. Can you tell me the modern workflow between a designer and a front-end developer? I can, but first I want to push back a little bit on the thesis here because I think there is this sense of, oh, there's, there's all this new stuff we can do that is making things easier, but no front-end developer that I have talked to feels like their job has gotten easier. In fact, there's a sense that it's getting more complex because more and more things are moving to the front-end. So it used to be that almost all of the front-end work that you were doing was presentational, and you're doing most of your stuff with HTML and CSS and maybe a little bit of JavaScript, but all the heavy lifting and the logic of your application was living on a server. That world is long past. So more and more of the complex software engineering that's going on is moving to the front end. And you have logic that's moving there. You have even data management and things like that. So you've got these complex state management systems. You've got Redux. You've got MobX. You've got GraphQL. All these different things going on to manage more and more of what used to live in the back end in the front end. So I think it is a little bit like there is this sense of, oh, my gosh, you know, drag and drop and no code is getting so powerful. It is, but the result has been that we've continually wanted to do more. And in fact, we've wanted to do more at a more rapid rate than the tooling has gotten better. So the amount of complexity that has happened is happening on the front end has simply skyrocketed relative to front ends a while ago. So you know, I think it's good that we're having more tooling the state of the art of what you can do without having to dive into code is going to continue to go forward. And we've had no code web development systems for forever. We've got WordPress, we've got Squarespace. People have been able to build websites forever and even some amount of interactivity. But whenever you want to go beyond that, do something new and different, you need to get into the code. And the amount that we've been wanting to do interesting things there on the front end has far outpaced the ability of that tooling to catch up. So the front-end teams at most companies I talk to are growing and expanding, and more people are feeling the pain of we don't have enough skill on the front-end than I see on the back-end as well. Coming back to the question about design and development and how those two things interact, 
it varies a lot by company, but what we seem to be moving towards is this concept of design systems and comp- linked component libraries. So having you know, within design a set of concepts, a set of specifications and standards. This is the typeface that we use. Here are the font sizes that we use. Here's the spacing. Here are our components. Here's how we're thinking about all these things so that when a designer is working on something, they have a fixed library of tools to use and this has been a thing in software engineering for a long time. We love our libraries. We love building out reusable bits that we can use over and over again and recombine in different ways. Well, that's coming to the design world. And then the translation of that into the front end is often a component library plus some additional styling stuff around typography and things like that. So when you've got that set up or when you, you're moving towards that, a lot of that interaction comes back to this discussion of, okay, what are the things that we have enabled in our design system right now, how do we fit the things that we want to do into that? And if we can't, what's a way that we can extend that system to do what we want to do now? And how does that play out into our component library? And if you think about this future development workflows, and I mean, who knows what what it'll look like, but if you think about just some high level things that we have today, you know, we, we have these thriving frameworks Actually, let's let's go deep on the frameworks right now, and then we'll get to to more to more futuristic things. But I'd like to to level set in, in the present and talk about the the present day frameworks. So, to my mind, the main prominent frameworks to talk about are Vue.js and React. I think you still have Angular. You still have a lot of people in Angular. You have a thriving Angular ecosystem, and you do have uh, Svelte. People are telling me to do a Svelte episode. I don't know anything about Svelte yet. But Vue and React are really the two elephants in the room, as far as I can, as I can tell, and they're and they're thriving. They're growing really quickly. Could you contrast the Vue and the React ecosystems for me? Sure. First, let's let's talk a little bit about one thing that you know sometimes gets lost here is a lot of these frameworks have a lot in common. We on the front end have more or less universally gone to a model where our development is organized by components. And we think about the world in terms of components, which accept properties from your parents. You can think about that as arguments passed into a function. They maybe have some internal state. They maybe don't. And then they have child components. So we're building these trees of components. And the component is the fundamental organizing block. If you look back to the jQuery days or things like that, that was not obvious as the development philosophy. That might be have been true in the UI, but then the way you were organizing your code is different. But that has been essentially universally adopted as the organizing framework for how we think about front-end frameworks and front-end JavaScript. And React is doing that, Vue is doing that, Angular is doing that, Svelte's doing that, Ember's doing that, Dojo's doing that, like whatever framework you talk about, they're pretty much, that's the approach they're doing. So you know, the positive thing about that is no matter where you start on a framework, if you really dig in and start to understand how to do component-oriented development and how to think about your code base in that way, you're going to be able to take those skills and that understanding from you as you go from framework to framework. Now, to your question, particularly about React and Vue, there's a number of differences both in the communities and in the way that the code is is organized and thought about. I'm going to start from just how the projects are run. React is a project from Facebook. They have a heavily staffed internal team that are paid by Facebook to work on React. And that heavily influences the direction of their development. And they're very open about that. You know, Dan Abramoff is one of the most visible members of that core team. And he says, you know what? Y'all should know we are making decisions based on what Facebook needs. 
the things that we're doing may not be optimal for you if you are not at Facebook scale or complexity. And that I think shows up in lots of little ways, but it is something to be aware of. And I think there's a lot of kind of hype around, oh, this is the React way to do it. We're going to do it this way that actually does not scale down very well. It works very well at scale. But then when new folks are trying to do it, those practices actually don't work very well always for small applications. And there's a lot of, I, I almost want to say embrace of complexity in that ecosystem where to a lesser degree than Angular, I think Angular actually goes even more in this direction of like they have the learning curve on Angular is, is really slow and long. And it's a very complex framework with lots and lots of different interlocking pieces because the mindset is enterprise and the people working on the framework and the primary users of the framework have these massive enterprise applications where they are going to have all that complexity anyway. But Angular scales down very poorly to small applications and you know just individual components that you might embed in a regular vanilla website or things like that. React has a little bit of that problem as well. And a lot of their time and energy is focused on the needs that Facebook has, which is fine. They're open about it. Though one of my wish list items for the future is that they might put React out into a separate foundation the way they did with GraphQL so that it can be a little bit more responsive to the actual community using it. Vue, on the other hand, from a development stance perspective, started as a BDFL style project. So Benevolent Dictator for Life, Evan Yu created it. They are in the process of moving to being a completely community-run organization. He's been essentially delegating more and more pieces and giving ownership. There's a well-established core team now with different areas of specialization and ownership. I think Evan Yu is still sort of acting as a bit of a dictator there, but not nearly as much. They've adopted a very solid community RFC approach to adding new functionality and features, and that has very much influenced the development of Vue 3, which is supposed to launch any day now. So that's kind of like the approach and development. I think that actually ends up playing out a little bit in what you see in the communities. The Vue community feels much more bottom up. It feels much more, how would you say, like kind of global and grassroots driven. The React community there's is massive. There's lots of people. A lot of the very loud voices tend to be sort of your more traditional tech voices. There's a lot of loud white men in that community to not put it too too bad. Whereas I feel like when I've gone to view related conferences, they tend to be much more diverse along gender directions, but also racial dimensions and also age dimensions. I found a lot more, you know, both young and old ends of the spectrum at, at view communities than I have the React, which just seems to be very sort of traditional tech audience centered. In terms of approach using the frameworks, there are some ways that they're pretty different. So React has very much embraced a, a functional programming approach. They try to do all sorts of things with you know, having immutable state and everything's returning. And you're trying to get to sort of very functional ways of thinking about the world. Even sometimes when that's very confusing to users or to new folks, there's kind of a philosophical approach there. Vue has not approach that much as much. And they've kind of centered around this concept of reactivity where you are changing objects rather than having immutable objects that then get processed and return new things. So you're changing objects and observing those changes and having things react to those changes. So interestingly enough, react, though it has that in the word, does not use this concept of reactivity. They use state changes as you're 
you know, you're doing some sort of functional transformation and then replacing the state. Whereas view, you're changing an existing blob of state and things react to that. Totally changing the subject rapidly because I, w- I want to move through several different other topics and then get some perspective on on where you think the future is headed. How would you define the term Jamstack and how has the rise of the Jamstack affected front-end development trends? Great question. So first, just simple, what does the acronym mean? So Jamstack stands for, Jam stands for JavaScript, APIs, and Markup. And the concept of Jamstack is essentially going further and further towards this concept of separated front-end and back-end. So many applications have started to be architected where you will have a JavaScript application as your front-end and then some sort of server application that is your back-end. But all of the communication between those things is via APIs. Contrast this to, I don't know, 10 years ago when most web applications, your server was rendering your HTML and then you were also putting out JavaScript that might manipulate that on the client. So the trend is towards this concept of a SPA, single page application, where you just you have a JavaScript app that is doing things and maybe it's just it's loaded all at once or maybe it pre-compiles some things so you can load a page that's HTML, but you have this separated front end from your back end. Jamstack is going way in that direction. It's saying, okay, let's forget that idea kind of of having a server application at all. Yes, it'll be still be there, but we'll call it an API or just APIs. And in fact, a lot of times we'll try to use third-party APIs so we don't have to build those pieces ourselves. And we're going to focus entirely on building this front end of the application. What does that look like? Can we generate it all using JavaScript and markup? And then anything dynamic, we talk to the APIs. Big picture, it's part of this trend towards pre-compilation. You know, we've sort of over time observed that one, it's often faster, especially it's more responsive as you go to ship a bunch of JavaScript out and then only once that you can cache at a CDN and then only ship data out from your core servers. So that's that's one step. But oh, there's some slowness there because that JavaScript still has to render a page that's not responsive right away. Well, what if you could ship just, you could pre-compile your HTML and ship your JavaScript. So all of that's going out. And then all the data is only loaded from APIs. We're pre-compiling more and more things. Maybe we could pre-compile all of our pages or almost all of our pages and have those out, put them out on a CDN so it's very close to whoever's loading it, have it load very fast, and then only go back you know, as much as possible or as when you need dynamic data. Only go back to an API then. Everything else stay out on what they call the edge. So that's that's kind of the, the concept that JavaScript is, or Jamstack is pushing towards. It's saying, let's push things further out. And let's pre-compile more. So you know, one of the big frameworks in the Jamstack world is this framework called Gatsby, which is a React-based framework for generating websites and applications. But the concept there is they're trying to pre-compile as much as possible. They want to pre-compile every page. So even though you might have your data loaded from a database traditionally, you know, maybe you use a WordPress background or maybe you have a traditional database exposed via an API, got a bunch of content there that's going to generate your pages, maybe product pages or blog pages or what have you. Gatsby's going to go and fetch that data, not when somebody requests the page, but at compile time, when you're shipping a new version of your application, it's going to go out, crawl through everything it needs to crawl through to get the data to render your pages, pre-render all of those pages, and then you stick them up on a CDN so that when somebody tries to load it, it's all there right away. It doesn't have to touch any sort of database or processing to get there. Got it. Got it. 
When I'm building a new product, G2i is the company that I call on to help me find a developer who can build the first version of my product. G2i is a hiring platform run by engineers that matches you with React, React Native, GraphQL, and mobile engineers who you can trust. Whether you are a new company building your first product, like me, or an established company that wants additional engineering help, G2i has the talent that you need to accomplish your goals. Go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about what G2i has to offer. We've also done several shows with the people who run G2i, Gabe Greenberg and the rest of his team. These are engineers who know about the React ecosystem, about the mobile ecosystem, about GraphQL, React Native. They know their stuff, and they run a great organization. In my personal experience, G2i has linked me up with experienced engineers that can fit my budget, and the G2i staff are friendly and easy to work with. They know how product development works. They can help you find the perfect engineer for your stack, and you can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i to learn more about G2i. Thank you to G2i for being a great supporter of Software Engineering Daily, both as listeners and also as people who have contributed code that have helped me out in my projects. So if you want to get some additional help for your engineering projects, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash G2i. Continuing our trend of disjoint topics, and then we'll, we'll we'll bring some of these together. Is WebAssembly impacting front-end development today? Good question. When you say impacting, there's a couple ways I could interpret that. So one, as your typical JavaScript or front-end developer, no, you're not thinking about it at all. However, it's already being included in ways that you're using and you're not aware of. <laughs> so for example, every web developer is using different types of dev tools, and looking at when you're we're doing all of that minification and compiling of things, you need tooling to be able to go back to what your original source code is. So there's these things called source maps that basically map from your compiled code to your pre-compiled code. The tooling that is working on those source maps is written and shipped in WebAssembly. And so are a bunch of other libraries. And so I think your average JavaScript developer, that's going to continue to be there, or your average front-end developer, that's going to be, continue to be their interaction with WebAssembly is under the covers. They're going to use a library that happens to be implemented in WebAssembly. What WebAssembly does for you, though, is it allows folks who are not traditional front-end developers to bring, or not traditional web developers, to bring their applications to the front-end. So, for example, I talked with a guy last year who, he has a gaming engine that he had built with Unity, and it was it written in C++ and it was functioning, you know, you would download this game engine, whatever, and just use it as an installed application. But by compiling it to WebAssembly, he built a React-based front end and suddenly his entire gaming engine and your ability to write games was available in the browser. So that's where I think WebAssembly is going to impact the front end. It's not for how it's going to change current front end developers. There, for them, it'll most likely be hidden in libraries, just utilized. It's another tool in the tool chest. You import it the same way you would JavaScript. But what it does do is it allows you to bring things that are traditionally not web applications or people with skill sets that are not traditional web development skill sets and move them into the front end. Indeed. So impacting us in small ways today, 
almost inevitably impacting us in big ways in the indeterminate time horizon future. One way to think about the web and browsers is the web is the most widely distributed and most popularly used delivery system in the world. And it used to be that that was only available to documents. It was a document delivery network. Then we added applications, but only if you're willing to use the particular programming paradigms and languages, particularly JavaScript, of the web. What WebAssembly does is say, hey, you know what? Screw that. Whatever programming language you want to use, you now have access to the largest app platform in the world, way bigger than you know, any sort of mobile app platform, way bigger than any sort of desktop app platform. Everybody can use this, and you can now access that from whatever language you want. Right. Define the term micro front-end for me. Micro front-end is... But you can put it in the context of Twitter. But I'll put it in the context of is something that I think your audience may be more familiar with, which is this idea of microservices. So microservices on the back end have been a popular topic for a while with lots of opinions on whether they're good or not. But essentially what they let you do is organize your code base as a set of independent services that can evolve independently, that don't have links to each other other than via an API and whatever guarantees you have on that API. That has the downside of dramatically increased operational complexity, but the upside of each one of these particular things is isolated, probably easier to test, and more importantly, can be owned and evolved by an, its own team using their own technology choices without impacting the other services. Very valuable, particularly in large companies where you have lots of teams and synchronization costs between those teams is very high. Micro front ends is saying, hey, we can do that same thing on the front end. Why not? We can have this team own this part of the front end. Maybe, you know, if I'm Amazon or something like that, like I might have a whole team focused on the navigation. And I have another whole team that's focused on the product page. And I have another whole team that's focused on the shopping cart and all of these different things. And some folks said, okay, well, let's let each of those teams make their decisions and ship each one of those out as a micro front end. And then they can all interact. The the challenge there is there's substantially more operational complexity there than there is in microservices because one, you have to be really rigorous about what are the APIs, how do they interact with each other. But two, because we've got all of these different frameworks and since everything's running in the browser, the frameworks themselves have to get shipped out and they have to go over the wire to the browser to run it. So you know, if you're writing micro frontends and React and Vue and all these other things like Anything that's running those micro frontends needs those libraries out there. You know, in a microservices, I don't have to worry about your servers. It doesn't matter what's running on my server because all that's coming back to you is the data from the API. In a micro frontend, you can quickly end up in or environment, you can quickly end up in a situation where your front end is loading hundreds of kilobytes, maybe in megabytes, maybe even megabytes of JavaScript to run each of these front ends. Now there are other solutions. There are folks who say, well, we're not gonna you know, restrict you entirely, but we are going to restrict you to one framework so they don't end up with that. Or they do some sort of, you know, integration layer where essentially they have a proxy in between that weaves together the front ends rather than loading them all from directly from the browser. It weaves them together, rendered output in a proxy server of some sort, and then ships that final version out. There's, there's lots of different implementation things, but the high level there is it's trying to apply the concept of microservices to the front end, but it turns out there's even more operational complexity in getting it right. 
So is that to say that this is something that people don't actually use? This is just like a Twitter talking point? No, I think there are folks actually using it. So by the way, it basically being the idea, like, let's say I'm a sizably large company. Let's say I'm like Airbnb. I don't Mm -hmm. think Airbnb does this, but let's say I'm Airbnb. We want to give the developers lots of freedom and we want to give them the ability to, for, you know, Airbnb experiences, they can develop their system in view and Airbnb, you know, the home home sharing platform is developed in, in Svelte. And these different teams can work with their different front end systems and that's all hunky dory. And that's the idea of the micro front end. It's really the bring bring your own front end. Kind of. Yes, though though let me clarify a little bit more. It is not that uncommon to have different sections of your application owned by different teams potentially using different frameworks. So you know, for example, an admin dashboard that's written in Vue, but a customer-facing experience that's written in React, or even you know, an old customer. I, I was chatting with somebody from Etsy, and their, I believe it was their internals have been rewritten with React for a long time, but the customer-facing stuff is all still being rendered by PHP. And then there's some jQuery that does stuff, right? Like that's not that uncommon. Divided by product area, and it's it's often not that bad because you don't have Often the same people aren't using the same, all of those things at once. Maybe, you know, it's divided by a user type. In Etsy's case, might be customers versus shop owners. Or even just like when I go to a page, it's going to be like a, a brand new page refresh, but that's okay because it has to load this new library. Where micro front end, I think, really starts to talk is when you're talking about that di- subdivision at the component level. So I have a single page with a dozen different components on it. And this component is owned by this team and that component is owned by that team. And those things can evolve independently. That's where it gets really complicated in terms of allowing fully different frameworks. And and you have to be really thoughtful or you'll quickly end up in a situation where you have kind of catastrophic levels of JavaScript going to the browser. I think there are people trying to solve this because there, there are some sort of benefits to being able to isolate things in this way. I think most of the people actually using this still put a restriction. So they say, okay, you can own a lot of things independently and we're going to stitch them together and we're not going to have them as part of the same code base maybe, but you still have to use React. And so they at least eliminate the multi-front-end loading lots and lots of different front-end frameworks on the same page load. Okay. There's a whole bucket of other things that I didn't get to explore with you that I wanted to, things like machine learning and Tailwind CSS and GraphQL and so on. And maybe those will have to wait for some future conversation or something. But one thing I I really wanted to get your perspective on, just because it's come up in, in a lot of recent episodes, is how we do get to this drag and drop world assuming you believe this is a reality like i mean i see it i see it happen it is happening to some extent in, in the low code environment and 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 to me this seems like a very important trend I, I mean i think some people who listen to the show think i've latched on to like a brain virus of the low code no code <laughs> stuff but to me it seems like this vision of WYSIWYG software development is finally coming to fruition in some sense. And it's hard to know how mature it is. It's hard to know from where I stand exactly how widespread the use is. And the biggest thing I'm curious about that I feel like we can actually discuss today is what bridges the gap between these two ecosystems, the low-code, drag-and-drop, perhaps in many cases proprietary-based 
interface builder ecosystem versus the build your own from the ground up JavaScript based classic framework world? How do we bridge the divide between those two ecosystems? And what is the nature of the divide as it stands today? Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question. So I think one way to think about this is rather than thinking about it as a there's a no-code world and there's a code world, think about it as increasingly powerful abstractions and increasingly powerful tooling. So the amount of stuff that we can get out of the box today, whether it's front-end or back-end, for doing development is astounding. And both as a developer, looking at tools like React or Vue on the front-end or looking at you know, managing servers on the back end with Kubernetes or not having to manage servers on the back end because you use a platform as a service like Heroku or things like that. Like the amount of stuff that I used to have to worry about that I don't have to worry about at all is shocking. And that is playing out on the UI builder side as well. UI builders have gotten more and more powerful, more and more integrated and able to do more and more things. And I think those trends continue to rise. So the question is, where's the line where the majority of situations that we're wanting to accomplish are below that line of, it's already been solved, it's automated away, I just have to wire things together. And I think actually Jamstack is, a, is an interesting driver of that. It's pushing things in that direction because it's pushing, it's creating a, an ecosystem where, for example, Zapier is a viable company where I can build a business that is only about creating drag and drop relationships between third-party services. And I can do that because there's enough demand from people building UIs to do that. Or there's enough demand from people who are building things on WordPress or who, who are essentially doing no code right now that want to do things that traditionally you'd have to write code to do. You'd have to run a little server somewhere. Well, instead, I'm just going to wire them together with Zapier and it'll just go. So I don't think it's a line in the sand before this point, we're going to be coding. And after this point, we're going to be no coding. I think it's just saying like, what is the level of work that we need to be doing? What is it that we're trying to accomplish? And how much of that can be done without writing custom code? And I don't know where the line is today because I, I'm actually, you know, I don't honestly care that much about no code because I like coding. <laughs> but I think it, that code has gone come very far. I think we're going along those lines when we talk about building a bespoke application from the ground up. There are zero per people doing that today. Functionally equivalent to zero because everyone's building on top of a framework like React or they're building on top of even if they're building on top of jQuery, right? There's this massively developed piece of tooling that has had thousands of hours of time put into it that makes your life easy now. And the typical JavaScript application that you, you ship may touch or use either in the actual code or as part of the build process over a thousand independent open source packages. Like you install the application template essentially from Create React, React App, which is like here's a, a standard template for building a React application. And it installs a thousand packages. Most of those for things that get built are part of the build system compiled away, but like it's touching all those things. That's all software you didn't have to build. And so conceptually it's no code, right? Like if I, if no code just means code, I don't have to worry about. 
so yeah, I think we're we're already getting there in many ways. And people who are doing application development right now are on sitting on top of the same foundation of the people who are using drag and drop platforms to create applications. It's the same stuff. It's open source packages that are and available API frameworks that interact with each other that anyone can access. All right. Well, just abbreviated discussion at the end here about software podcasting. So podcasting as a way to explore and disseminate information about software engineering. You and I both do this thing. How does this fit in to the educational path of a software developer? I mean, we all know that you can only succeed as a software developer if you're continually learning. I mean, I guess it, it, it does depend on your, on your definition of success because, I mean, you can just learn kind of one paradigm of software and just kind of maintain code bases in that paradigm for the rest of your life and have a very good living. So I guess you don't necessarily have to continually do the reinvention sort of thing, but certainly most people make some habit out of it. But what's your perspective on the software podcasting medium and and how does it look going forward? Is it a durable medium? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm not just tooting my own horn there because <laughs> I, I obviously do have a little bit invested in, in podcasting doing well. But for me, podcasting gives you, as a listener, scalable access to the type of content or information that you would otherwise have to go to a conference to get. We actually, on JS Party, we did an episode amusingly labeled The Wonderful Thing About Tiggers, but we, we did this episode on learning and how, to, how, we different, how we learn about different things. And one of the things that came up there that I thought was fascinating was different mediums help you learn at different levels. So going to a conference is great for learning what you should learn about. It's great for getting you excited. It's great for inspiring you. It's great for you know, getting the, a big picture it's really bad for digging into the nitty gritty details and building out a tactical skill. And I would put podcasting in that same bucket. Podcasting is a wonderful way to discover what you should be learning about. It's a great way to get a sense of how people are thinking about things. It's a really bad way to learn a particular tactical skill. But I think you know that piece, especially if we look in a world that is so incredibly filled with abundance. I mean, look at what I mentioned in terms of JavaScript, 500 new open source packages every day Figuring out what you should be learning about is a huge part of the challenge of learning. What should I learn? And so podcasting is a scalable way to disseminate that same type of curation, that same type of inspiration, and that same type of access to what are the brightest people in the field learning about, thinking about, speaking about in a way that you you can listen to in your pocket as you go for a run. You don't have to travel halfway across the world to go to a conference on. And you can listen to from anywhere. Kevin Ball, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking. Absolutely. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. 
Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com slash atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily. 